for five. There's a certain element. Certainly, and that's yeah. what it's not is. consuming yeah. me like twenty four seven. I gotta be patient. Yeah, I'm still patient. <laughs> Hey, welcome to The Price of a Mile. I'm Woody Kincaid, and today is September 6th, 2017. For this episode, I interviewed my teammate, Andrew Bumbleo. Bumbleo has been a professional runner under Jerry Schumacher for six, going on seven years now. But before he started a professional career, he was a standout cross-country and track runner in high school, where he earned a scholarship to Georgetown University, and there he was a six-time All-American. And then post-collegiately in 2012, he was fourth at the Olympic trials in the 5,000 meter. I might add that through no fault of his own, Bumby's also at the center of a controversial moment in Bowerman Track Club history and in Nike Oregon Project history. This event even made some waves in the rest of the sport. So we'll get into that later. But for now, you just need to know that I sometimes call Bumbleo Bumby because we've lived together now for two months at altitude camps. This is Woody Kincaid interviewing Andrew Bumbleo of Bowerman Track Club. We're in a special housing situation right now. We're at the crib in Mammoth. I guess I'd call it a you know endurance athlete uh, hostel almost, but it's like a, a beautiful lodge type setting, um, multi-million dollar home. Yes, yeah. that's fantastic. So it's beautiful, and they let me in. All I had to do was say I wanted to train in Mammoth and that I'm a competitive runner, and I'm living like a king while Bumby lives by himself in a stuffy. Cabin <laughs> up, up at 8,500 feet while well, we're at uh, 7,800. So that's where we are right now. We're in the basement of, of the crib. And uh, we're going to just ask you about um, one of the Bowerman OGs. Sure. Andrew yeah. Bumbleo. When I first met you, I thought you were like a, I thought you were a West Coaster. Okay. Right? Yep. Because you kind of have that vibe. But I found out uh, on our first run with CD and out in Camas. Sounds right. Yeah, yeah, Camus, yeah. Portland. We were, we were up. We were we were in Camas, Washington, um, right. just up the uh, Columbia River a bit. It's a uh, it's a nice place to run. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I was just running with this guy. I thought I was just running with like a chill West Coast guy. <laughs> but <laughs> turns out you're from the South, man. That's true. Yeah. You're a Tennessee native. Yes, I'm from Nashville, Tennessee, originally uh, born and raised. Um, my parents are also from uh, Nashville, and it really goes back. Uh, both both sets of grandparents are Tennesseans as well. So, so the South, so it, the so, Confederates. Well, I, I don't wanna, <laughs> I don't want to go there with that, but uh, I, I do want to say that yeah. I mean, we're we're definitely Tennesseans through and through, and um, you know, my family's been there for a long time, and it it definitely is an important place to me. So, you li- when did you leave Tennessee? Was the first time out of Tennessee in college? 
Yeah. So, well, not the first time I ever left the state. Uh, sure. I, I actually was fortunate to go to a lot of different places um, when I was younger with my family. We traveled a lot. So I got to experience a lot of different you know, places. I, I went to the UK when I was in fifth grade. Like I went to London with my family. I went to, I've, I guess I visited some family friends uh, in Washington, D.C. when I was uh, maybe in you know, fifth or sixth grade. And it's kind of funny because that's, that's where I ended up going to school. So that was the first time, Georgetown was the first time um, that I'd lived away from home. Okay. And that, of course, is in Washington, D.C. And I was, you know, 18 or whatever. So, so yeah. Yeah. You were with a bunch of possible carpetbaggers. <laughs> you, keep, you, keep you keep drawing this distinction that I'm, that I'm uncomfortable with. Um, but no, uh, you know, so yeah, you're right. You're right in the sense that like, you know, moving to D.C. and going to a school like Georgetown, there were a lot of kids that were from New Jersey, New York, Massachusetts, which culturally for me, coming from Nashville, very different. I mean, the vibe, I don't know, like the vibe on the East Coast is totally different than it is in Nashville. But, you know, it was really it was really good for me, I think, because it, it really broadened my horizons. I met a lot of people you know, that were a lot different than me with different backgrounds, but yet, you know, still like some of my best friends. I mean, one of my best friends is from Minnesota. One's from Maine from college. So kind of cool to like, you know, meet some different people from across the country. Mm-hmm. You know, Georgetown is a kind of destination school. I mean, like it's not just drawing from one geographical area, like a lot of schools, it's sure. drawing internationally even. So I just thought about it and I've never actually asked I don't know anything about your life before Georgetown. Yeah. What did you do? I started running when I was, if you're, if you're kind of curious about that, I started running when I was in sixth grade, technically. So my school was really small. And so they needed, they needed bodies to fill out, the, to fill the teams out, basically. Right, right. So my sixth grade English teacher rolls in with like a bunch of like cotton t-shirts. Like they're, they're, those were our jerseys for middle school cross country. Like the thickest most uncomfortable cotton you could ever imagine wearing and it's hot it's august in tennessee and it's brutal you're sweating through this shirt it's terrible it weighs like five pounds but anyway like she convinced me like oh you should go run the cross country meet today i'd never run in my life competitively like before that and i was like okay like that sounds fun like (laughs) i'm small and like you know not super uh like athletic in the sense of like being good at football or basketball. So I was all in, you know, I was like, let's do it. So that, that kind of got the thing kickstarted. I really didn't get serious about training until I was probably a freshman or sophomore in high school. So, but yeah, you know, you know, kids in Tennessee, man, they, they get outside. Like I, I spent a lot of my childhood outdoors, you know, we grew up going to this lake called Center Hill Lake in Tennessee, you know, water skiing, fishing, going like just playing in the creek in the backyard you know just doing stuff that like kids do outside you know this is kind of like before like online gaming existed you know (laughs) like like, the best we had was nintendo 64 which was awesome i played goldeneye all the time but like in mario kart and all that but like it was a different time you know yeah i mean there's even a difference between my generation and yes. are we the same generation? Yeah, we're we're definitely the same generation, absolutely. Yeah. But you we're know, both millennials. We are, yeah, yeah. absolutely, hundred percent. I grew up doing a lot more stuff outside, I think, than maybe the average kid does now. Because I mean, it's not because I'm like more whole, like that I'm holier than now on that front. I mean, like I enjoy technology just as much as the next guy. The options just weren't there. 
just you can do anything with a, with your phone and kids have phones when they're in sixth grade or I, I loved being from Tennessee like I, I still do love being from Tennessee and really enjoy going back home as much as I can yeah I mean you, I really want to go to Nashville now yes nice if it's anything like Austin yes you think it's kind of like Boulder maybe no. Um, not, maybe not as, it's not as progressive as Boulder, but I think it, I think as we were talking about on a run here, Nashville and Austin are incredibly similar. They both have a music scene. Yeah. Um, obviously Nashville leans a little bit more country music, but there still is like a, a burgeoning rock. I mean, third man records, Jack White's, uh, yeah. like pet project is in Nashville. Kings of Leon are oh, from yeah. Nashville. Um, so you kind of have like this like underground rock kind of movement happening, but Nashville's changed a lot even since when I lived there. But it's kind of been fun to watch it become more hip, yeah, and maybe a little bit more progressive. You know, so it's your fault. Yeah, it's my fault. I I, <laughs> I totally I ruined it for everyone that I guess doesn't like that. But you know, I think for everyone that does, it's it's really cool. And uh, what I'll say too is. Um, kind of going about with with the West Coast vibe that you said I had before. It's like I think that DC never felt like home ever. Mm-hmm. Like it was a great great place to go to school, but it never felt like home. Portland feels like home, you know. It's got some similarities similarities to Nashville, but it's also got some differences. And you know, it's I, I really like it. So yeah, you like Bend, right? I love Bend. Right. Yeah. I think that's the thing. Yeah. I love Bend too. I I think Colorado and, and Oregon actually have similar similar culture definitely so yeah. I, I would like it to yeah in nashville maybe yeah no i think you could do it i, I mean it, it would it would feel different to you than than either colorado or because it's southern you know uh, i don't own a gun i don't own a gun i don't even know how to yeah. fire a gun yeah i mean i don't own a gun either um and i think we're pr- probably fairly similar on like our views on that um but it, <laughs> it's uh it's one of those things where like yeah, not every person in Nashville owns a gun, which is maybe come as a shock to you. <laughs> guns are fun. Guns are fun. Uh, you know, I don't know. You're right, though. Colorado and Oregon have similar vibes, I think. Yep. Um, both seem to to have a lot of pride and a lot of the feeling of, like, we make stuff. Like, Oregonians, like, every Oregonian that I've ever met that's, like, a real Oregonian, like, has lived there a whole life is, like... They make like kombucha in their yard, in, yeah. their, in their house. It's true. They grow their own food in like their yard. Like they have like huge gardens and stuff. I yeah. don't know. It's like this ingenious. Yeah, it's it's ingenious and it's industrious. It's industrious, and I think it's kind of like this spirit of like pioneerism that still like exists mm-hmm. almost. Like that they kind of want to do it themselves. Like they don't want to rely on outside influences as yeah. much. Yeah, you're kind of like that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's a, that's a, that makes sense to jive with you. Yeah. Well, let's mention Foot Locker. Yeah, sure. So you really came onto the scene in like 2000, onto the running scene. Mm-hmm. 2005, Foot Locker. Right. Or would you say you would before that? I would actually say before that. In 2004, I won Arcadia Invitational Two Mile. Mm-hmm. Um, I ran 849 for a full two mile um, and beat, at the time, uh, Shadrach Shadrach. Kip two, who is now a Shadrach Biwat. Um, I think he ran at Oregon and he's now like a two twelve marathon or two eleven or two twelve marathoner. That was kind of my like, oh, everyone now knows me on Diestat. Right. It was after that race. This little boy from Tennessee <laughs> that like went out to California and won, you know, the biggest race, arguably in the high school track season, I would say, you know, Arcadia. Who told you to go there? 
yeah, so I'd had, I'd had like some regional success, obviously, before that. It wasn't just a complete shot in the dark, but my coach felt like I could go break nine minutes, so that was that was why I went out there. Yeah, and same. Then, and then it, then it exceeded all expectations, you know, to win and run 11 seconds under nine nine minutes so that's such a good feeling it was yeah it was incredible it was it was really really fun but yeah then going back to like 2005 or going fast forwarding to 2005 after this year yeah you were all in like you yes yeah i I because you were the not you were kind of on the national scene yeah i mean i think you were on the national that was my junior year so arguably going into my senior year i was the best runner in the country Mm -hmm. i'd run the fastest and you know i was the favorite to win to win full locker that year my senior year yeah but i got second and you were leading i was yeah um i got a little sick before the race probably and you're not just saying that like you actually no i I was sick yeah Yeah, i believe yeah yeah but i just i felt like i needed to push um that's how i ran in high school i think that's how a lot of high schoolers run they just push and unfortunately uh there was there was a guy that had a better kick than me that day and, he, and now he's a sniper. And he became a, a, a Marine sniper, <laughs> which is just, yeah, I, you know, he he was an All-American his freshman year. At, Ken Cormier was a All-American his freshman year at Arkansas. So he was a really good runner. But it's interesting how our lives diverged after Very that. <laughs> Here I am uh, sitting in the basement in Mammoth, and I don't know what he's doing right now. <laughs> But probably something more important than what we're doing, possibly. Did you have plans for college? Were coaches talking to you? Because obviously you were still the number one guy even after. Yeah, even after getting second, I think most people it's with the with the track. You know, track times are so important, yeah. um, and still having that fast track time, I, you know, cemented me as is if like if not the top recruit, like one of the top recruits for yeah. sure. So I pretty much. I was fortunate, man. I, I could have gone pretty much anywhere. I actually was recruited by Jerry Schumacher to go really? to, to go to Wisconsin. Yeah. You might have been with Evan. I might have, but you know, I don't know if I would have been good enough. I think I think Evan was a special a special circumstance. I probably would have had to wait it out and finish my time up at Wisconsin. Because he would have left Jerry would have left Wisconsin my senior year. So I probably would have finished up and then hopefully been able to come out and join huh. the guys. But it's funny, it's like I'm so glad that I went to Georgetown just for the people that I met. And, you know, um, I had a great coach there. Pat Henner was awesome. I wouldn't trade that time for anything. But it is really cool to me that, like, my my running life did get to come full circle because I really liked Jerry, too, when he was recruiting me. Like, I liked everything about what he was saying about the team. And to be honest, I think the reason I didn't go or, like, didn't give it more of a consideration other than just, like, really liking Georgetown was the winter. I was like, I can't, yeah. I can't do Wisconsin. Like it's dark. It's, it's bone chilling cold. It's bone chilling cold. It's I, yeah, I ran one race, the footlocker race. Yeah. Regional in, in Kenosha, Kenosha, yeah. Wisconsin. Yeah. Brutal. Yeah. Yeah. Again. Jerry, Jerry made the mistake of bringing me out in January for my recruiting trip. No, it was a test. It was a test. And I failed. <laughs> You're right. Looking back, we know it was a test. <laughs> Sure. Is this Tennessee boy going to be soft? And I guess he got his answer. He's soft. He's soft. Cool. So what was your proudest race at Georgetown? Yeah. I know you, d- you did well there. You were six-time All-American. Yeah. Um, you were second in the 3,000 indoor. Mm-hmm. But sometimes your be- your most noted or notable accomplishments aren't what you're most proud of. Sure. Yeah. 
Um, my, I guess my most proud race actually comes from, came from the same meet where I was second in the 3k. It was at that indoor, um, championship in Fayetteville. Our team was really good that year. Uh, we, in our minds, we were a podium team. You know, we thought we could be top three, if not just, I, we didn't think we could, I don't think we believed we could beat Texas. Cause I don't think anyone was going to beat Texas with Leo Manzano and the anchor at that time. But we really believed that we could be a podium team. Our 400 and 800 guys in their exchange, they uh, they dropped the baton. And the baton at, on a on a bank track, it rolled all the way from lane four, and it just rolled, 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 rolled all the way down, and, and, it, and it nestled up against the rail. So it was that much time for like everyone to get away from our 800 guy um, who had a rough one. I got the baton from our 800 leg and was just buried. How far back were you? You know, it's it's hard to say distance-wise, but I bet I was seven seconds back at least, maybe eight seconds, which, what do you think? That's like 30, 40 meters? Uh, maybe more. Maybe more, maybe 50. In a, in a DMR when everyone's it may, fresh? It may have been 50 meters. It was a ways. Yeah. I kind of like had a moment of panic. Oh gosh, what am I going to do? Like, do I like run hard or do I just jog it in? Like, because we're so far out of it. And... As soon as I got the baton, I was just like, I went out hard. I was probably out, I don't know, like 154 through the 800. Like I was out hard just going after it. And I caught the guys with like maybe 400 to go and sat on men's on shoulder and was like trying to recover kind of. Because all those guys had run like 40, you know, they were on like 404 pace or something. Like you, they, were, you, they were slow. Yeah, you're talking about the last... Yes, leg, the, the last mile. leg. Yeah, the, the 1600 leg. The 1600, yeah. 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 So they're running like 404s. And I'm You're going to have to... Is you're at least eight seconds back yes. just to match them. Yes. Yes. So I catch up maybe 400 meters to go and sit for 200 meters. And then, of course, they start their, kit, their massive kick with 200 to go. Manzano um, takes off. No one's catching him. Kyle Alcorn, who is an Olympian um, steeplechaser, was followed Manzano. And then I was in third and I remained in third, like fighting so hard, rigging so hard because I'd gone out so fast and uh, got passed in the last 50 by two teams. One of them was Wisconsin, actually, which was kind of funny. (laughs) So Jerry got his revenge after all. (laughs) But uh, anyway, we ended up fifth. Um, I ran, I split like 356 flat. Some people had me at 355. I walked off the track. And my coach, Pat Henner, had, he had like a little bit of misty eyes. Like it was like, he was so proud of how I ran that race. And it was just like such a great feeling. Like, even though we didn't get podium to finish fifth, like to salvage fifth essentially was. I mean, you you could potentially win the 1500 running that pace. Right. Right. Yeah. And and no one's going to see it. Yeah. Yeah. You know. They're just watching the guy in the front, and then there's yeah, this- <laughs> there's this guy, and then he gets burned the last fifty. Yeah. Like, what what happened to the Georgetown guy? Right. But yeah, no, I, mean, I feel like the, maybe one of the more gutty races I've run, and so definitely pretty proud of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that was remarkable. So you graduate from Georgetown. Yep, an, a great a great career. Mm-hmm. You leave on good terms. You graduate. You realize, all right, I like Jerry. Yeah. I'm going to join his small group. Sure. At this time, it's a pretty small group. Yeah, it was five guys. Five guys. All from all from Wisconsin, too. All Wisconsin guys. Yeah, yeah. yeah. 2009. Yep. And uh, you just believe in Jerry? How, how do you pick BTC? Well, it wasn't BTC at that yeah. time. Oregon Track Club. It so. was Oregon Track Club. 
I guess I just watch, you know, watching results, watching how those guys raced and just remembering like how much I liked Jerry, like in the recruiting process, you know, went on an official visit really. I mean, Jerry, again, like Wisconsin was probably my number two choice. So I already had that. I kind of knew that. And I, I'd seen like how their guys had done over the years. I mean, Selinski ran 2659, like right before, like I was making that decision, you know? So it makes it easier. It was a lot easier. <laughs> it was like, you know, you know, basically it was like, I'll do whatever I can to be in this group. Like I'll do anything, you know, like uh-huh. whatever you need from me, I'll do it. It, it, it just kind of worked out. You know, I had, I had to wait a little bit over that summer. Some people like uh, John Capriotti at Nike had like, you know, he was on sabbatical that summer. So like, but my contract just took forever, but you know, like it was fine. Like, I knew that I had gotten like kind of confirmation over that summer that like, yes, I would be signed by Nike and I would get to run under Jerry. So I was on top of the world because I didn't know if they would let anyone that didn't run for Wisconsin in the group. It wasn't like it is now where the top guys in college. You have a good chance. Yeah, you have a good chance. If you have the credentials, you are considered at least. Well, a lot of it is uh, Jerry. I think Jerry has to uh, see potential. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I don't even know. If we've just gotten lucky, like we just like every like everyone no, gets man. along. I think Jerry just he knows how to do it. He he knows how to do it from the standpoint of like seeing talent and seeing like a guy maybe that like he believes that can be really really good. I think you're exa- you're an example of that. And I think he also can kind of tell personality too. Like, is this guy gonna mesh or girl? Is this, is this guy or girl gonna mesh with our vibe? You know. And so I think, I don't think it's by, I really don't think it's by accident that, that it just all kind of worked out for everyone. I mean, there's a lot of us now. Yeah, there is. Yep. It's no longer just five people. No. Nope. Five, five OGs yeah. out there. And it's been cool to like kind of be along for seven years and see the group transition. Guys have retired. We've added different guys and girls to the group and it's, it's been really cool to see. Does the vibe still feel the same now? As it was in 2010. There are differences for sure. It can be, I think you can circle it back to one athlete, basically. And that athlete is Chris Slutsky. (laughs) (laughs) Like that dude came to train every day. There was no easy day. And as a guy that was like a 1500 meter runner in college that was kind of dipping into the five towards the end of my career, being a fairly low mileage guy, I mean, being more like in the 70s and then getting in there with Chris Selinski, who is like a man. That dude is running under six, sub six pace for everything. He's running 120 miles a week training for the 5K. We have to remind people, this is what Selinski did. <laughs> yeah. Don't do this. Yeah. He, he don't. Yeah. yeah, not everyone does this. <laughs> no. This is public service. Especially if you're in high school. Yeah. Or, or <laughs> public <laughs> service announcement. <laughs> Uh, do this if you are Solinsky, if you are Solinsky only and do it for like three years and then never run again. Well, yeah, that's a whole different story. But yeah, I mean, I think it's crazy. The, that That's the biggest difference, I think, is just there, is, there isn't as much... Um, chiding <laughs> to against each other every day like there's none of i don't I, even well there is a th- little there thing. may not be really any of it now and i think it used to be man we're like, sensitive those guys yeah yeah you guys are you guys are millennials i mean i don't <laughs> you're a millennial <laughs> you're very sensitive no i'm just kidding that it's it's just different <laughs> yeah like but it's good like i i don't think it's bad and i don't think it's like that people are not t- as tough or anything like that i just think it's a different mindset so you're with Jerry for two years. Yeah. 
And I asked you the other day, yeah, what was the hardest race you ever ran? Yeah. And you said it was 2012 mm-hmm. Olympic trials. Mm-hmm. Do you want to watch it? <laughs> <laughs> I, I've, uh, I've actually never watched it. Oh, good. Uh, go. I, I don't really want to watch it. Well, we'll just watch the last. One. Okay. <laughs> Get ready to relive. He does not want to give away anything to Bernard Lagat. You don't want to spot someone any distance when you're getting down to the sprinting. I like where Bumbleau is on the inside. I think that's a good place to be right now. Less than two laps to run. Trefay still leads. Lagat is second. Rupp now third. Then Lamont fourth. And Bumbleau fifth. True is sixth. So who's going to make the first move here? The one who I don't think will make a move is Lamont. I think he'll wait as long as possible. And Lagat now takes over the lead, and Rupp goes with him stride for stride. Lamont follows him, and so does Bumbleau as Trofei fades back. Bumbleau checking out the other three and also looking at the screen to see who's behind. It's coming down to that classic kicker's race that we often see in qualifying races, and that's what Alberto Salazar said Rupp's got to be ready for in the 10,000 meters in London. Into the home straightaway, Lagat on the inside, Rupp on the outside, they're right together. Followed by Lamont and Bumbleau and True and Profay. Final lap looms. And talking to Galen Rupp's coach Alberto Salazar and Lopez Lamont's coach Jerry Schumacher, both of them have run workouts where they ran a full workout, came down to their last effort at the end of the day, and they were able to run a 50-second 400-meter. Galen Rupp is running this whole lap like a sprinter. Rupp has the lead. Lamont is second. Lagat now moves to challenge for second. Here comes Bernard Lagat. Rupp is in front. Lagat takes over second. They're in the turn for home. Lamont is third. Bumbleau fourth. Coming to the home straightaway. Rupp and Lagat come stride for stride. It's Rupp on the inside, Lagat on the outside, and Lagat surges to the front and now starts to pull away. Here's Bernard Lagat, 37 years old, racing for the finish, but Rupp's not done yet. He's coming back. It's Rupp to win it. Lagat second, and Lamont third. What an amazing finish. 52 seconds for his last lap, and guess So there you go. Yeah. You look pumped. Yeah, I mean... Yeah. So you heard the announcer say that you were in pretty good position Mm -hmm. with two laps to go. Yeah. I watched another interview with you where you said that you actually felt like you were going to make it with 350. Mm -hmm. You felt you still had it. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, the start of the race, like, obviously there's nerves. I mean, it's, like, the biggest moment of your career at that point. I I don't think – it's the only time where, like, I did not sleep the night before very well. Like, normally I sleep fine before big races, but before the Olympic trials, I was really, really amped up. I, you know, just kind of – it kind of settled in like a normal 5K race. Um, I feel like we were running – you know, a moderate tempo, not super hard at the beginning. Um, actually probably pretty slow at the beginning, but then a couple of guys that didn't have the standard, obviously like it's their only chance. So they, they go after it. So it kind of picks the pace up in the middle. You know, I think we were running some 64s, um, in the middle. Um, so like decent pace. 
yeah. And then we, I guess we just like, we watched the last, you know, K or so last 800 and I was feeling really good, really poised, really ready for, you know, a big finish. I knew it was going to be fast at the end. It always is, especially when you have, you know, Legat in the mix. And I mean, that year Galen was, I'd have to remember exactly what he ran before that, but I feel like he ran a really fast mile in 2012. Um, leading up to that. So I knew his speed was much improved from, you know, how he ran or, you know, what he was capable of in college. So obviously Lopez that year ran, uh, that was the year he miscounted laps at Stanford. And I think he ran like, he ran like 13, I, I, I'm going to say hit the wrong time, but I feel like it was like 13, 12, but with like, <laughs> with like a six second stop plus like you thought the race was over. Yeah. Yeah. He sprinted the penultimate lap, you know, um, in, in like 53 <laughs> and then stopped for six seconds and then realized, Oh, I got to run another lap. So I knew Lopez was fit too, because he still ran like 13, 11. I, I ran 13, 16 in that race, but I knew, I knew the correct laps, you know? Yeah. Uh, so, but it breaks with two laps to go. Yeah. Just four of you guys. Yeah. Three of you are going to make it. Right. And I totally believed that I was going to make it. Um, you have to, right? Like you're running the race to, to finish in the top three. I knew, I mean, on paper, all three of those guys are better than me. If you just, if you're, if you are looking at it from just a completely non-biased way, you're like, okay, you know, Legat's one of the best of all time. Lopez is in the shape of his life that year for 5,000 and then Rupp is running phenomenally um in 2012 you're about the same age as as rup too yeah he's a year older so we're pretty much the same age you're 25 yeah. he's 26 yeah 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 I, I i guess i just didn't expect rup to close in 52 that's what it comes down to mm-hmm. <laughs> like he closed in 52 and the way he came back on you know watching it just now um obviously i saw a different perspective when i was racing but the way he came back on legat is I've never, like, no one, once Legat stepped on the gas the last 50, no one comes back on him. So it's pretty shocking and pretty unbelievable that Rupp was able to get the better of him, especially passing on the inside. So, Why was it the hardest race you ever ran? Why are you most proud of that? You know, obviously it's a huge moment. I don't, I feel like I'm almost equally as proud of the way I handled myself afterwards than actually during the race. You know, I think I, I left it all out there. Like I left 110% out there. Like you actually, you showed up. Yeah. Right. You, mm-hmm. you didn't crumble under the pressure. You, you ran the race almost perfectly. Yeah. I ran, I ran as best of a race. I, I, I literally ran as good of a race as I feel like I could have run. Um, and I think that's, what's the, that, that's kind of what is the hardest thing, right? Like you do your best and that's what track and field is all about. There's no, there's no defense. You do your best. And if it's not good enough, that's, that's a hard pill to swallow. Like that is like, it's just is, you know, like, it's not like you made a mistake. It's not like you regretted doing something within the race. It's just, you I just wasn't as good as those three guys on that day. That was a difficult thing for me to, to experience. But at the same time, I feel like it, um, it made me grow as a person because I realized, you know, not all of my self-worth or value is being a runner. Like I have, like there are other things in life that are, that, that are really important and valuable to me. And I feel like my family and friends stepped up in a really big way for me 
to kind of help me through that because it was a difficult thing to finish fourth after putting so much into it for, you know, a couple of years. So we do a lot of runs together. Yeah. You remind me of this all the time when I get a little bit, you know, into running, <laughs> carried away, uh, just thinking about my training or something. And you're just like, enjoy running, train as hard as you can, yeah. but do a lot of things that you love. Mm-hmm. And I think you do live by that. Yeah. No, I, and I think that, I think that there are times of the year where you have to kind of push any sort of distraction out and be so like single-minded and focused that that's all you are doing. You're living it all. You're living, breathing it. You know, you have one goal and I think that's good, but I don't think, I also don't, I mean, for me, it's not sustainable. Like if I, if I, if I approach it that way all the time, I'm going to get sick of it. I'm going to start to hate it. In our sport, you have ups and downs. You have injuries. You have bad races. You have periods where like things aren't going well and you don't know why. If you define yourself completely as running is the only thing that gives me value, then you're going to be unhappy. You have to find something else in life, I think, that gives it meaning or gives you pleasure because... It's just running is just too unpredictable, I think, to to be your const to be your like God or to be your constant, yeah. you know? Because it's just not going to be. It is kinda like blackjack. If yeah, if you ride the wave, you're gonna like there's gonna be some dark times. <laughs> let it ride. <laughs> yeah, if you let it ride, like you keep letting it ride. Yeah. Some days it's you're gonna be you're gonna walk home with a much a smaller stack. A smaller purse for <laughs> yeah. sure. Yeah. I mean you, you truly live by that. You uh that a lot has changed in the last two three years in your life because mm-hmm. you you've got a, a child now you got a kid yeah so um my wife and i yeah let's talk about that oh, let's sure. talk about um, do you mind no no yeah let's talk about it okay it's a huge part of my life now um yeah uh my wife and i started your high school sweetheart yeah that that's true puke. that's true well you know, we she would probably like make fun of that a little bit because we didn't start dating until college. We were we were just friends in high school, and she would say I blew it. <laughs> I blew it until she said it was she accepted me. So, uh, but yeah, that's lame. That's really lame. Um, <laughs> that is really lame, man. <laughs> hey, you gotta be real. Um, okay. But anyway, yeah, we've three years ago, someone stood stood up in front of our church and was talking about foster care and talking about it specifically in Multnomah County and that's which is where you know Portland is how big of a need it is in our city and my wife was I think pretty you know moved by that so she wanted to start doing more for foster care so we cared for this little boy with our like so our friends were foster parents and but they needed someone to watch him during the day um, when he was a baby and my wife was able to take him. She literally would take him to work with her and like just let him like sleep or like have him like in, you know, like a carrier or whatever. And just like she would be on her computer working and this little boy would just be sleeping and she would feed him when he needed to be fed. And that was that, you know, and we're great. We, get, we became really great friends with this family and, you know, we're his godparents now. It all it was really it was a really cool thing that just kind of mutually worked out for both of us. Then we decided, okay, we want to take it a step further. And now we want to be trained to be like full-time foster parents where the child is like, you know, living with us full-time. So we um, got certified about a year and a half ago or a little more than that, maybe two years ago now. 
and uh, we've had um, the same we've had the same little boy living with us for uh, over a year now. So yeah. So I don't know what you can say, but do you like how how does foster care work? Do you will you be able to? Because there is it's an indefinite commitment, right? You don't know it how is. long you're gonna have the child, right? Obviously, the, the main goal of foster care is ultimately to hopefully return the child to their biological parents. But when that can't happen, you know, circumstances don't allow for that, then oftentimes adoption is kind of the next process or whatever, right. or, or what, what happens. So um, we are opening ourselves up to to that. So we're really excited to, to adoption. So we're really, yeah, we'll, we'll stay tuned on that. Maybe <laughs> maybe that will, there'll be more that we can share in part two. There will um, be a little bumble out there. Yes, yes, okay. yes. Cool. Now, before we get too preachy, let's talk about some, <laughs> some dirty stuff that happened in this sport, man. <laughs> You ready? <laughs> no, we have to talk about this because it was. It, yeah. I thought about not asking you about it, sure, because it's it's kind of controversial, but it's such a watershed moment in our history as a group, BTC, and even yours now, mm-hmm. whether you like it or not. There was a race in 2014, USA 3K indoors. Mm-hmm. Yes, you took it out hard. Yes, you made an honest pace. It was in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Yes, and. You took it out in like two thirty two thousand mm-hmm. at altitude, mm-hmm. which is insane, and maybe like a three oh seven first k, and that hurts a lot, leading from the front. Right. It was a brave, wonderful performance. I think even the the announcer is very complimented, like he compliments you a lot. Um, but you fade. Right. Top three, you know. Right. Medal and, but you you fade to eighth. Mm-hmm. And for some reason, you are disqualified from the race. Yes. And this sends waves that you don't foresee coming. Yeah, there were shockwaves. Yeah. <laughs> Massive waves. Yeah. Well, so let's back up. Bowerman Track Club obviously didn't, we didn't get our own club until I believe the beginning of 2015. Maybe it was 2014. My, my years are spotty on this. But we were we ran for Oregon Track Club. I think it was until 2015 is when we when we earlier. when we first got the Bowerman singlet because I I ran New York half in in that but anyway. Okay. But when Jerry first moved to to Portland, I think the groups and this is before I was even around, but the groups were kind of somewhat doing some things together, like maybe some runs. I don't know. He's referring to Jerry Schumacher's group and Alberto Salazar's group, two teams that trained in Oregon. It was loose. Things like cornered off pretty quickly. Alberto's athletes did stuff with him and Jerry's athletes did stuff with him. And I think things were fine at first, but I think over the course of time, a a very healthy rivalry uh, started to emerge as the athletes from each group faced off against each other. I mean, you were the same age as Galen. Yes. Uh, So you you went through everything with him. Right. And... Solinsky, the first one to break 27. Yes. That was a big deal. It was a really big deal. So there was some serious rivalry going on. Yeah. What you saw in Albuquerque may have been a result of that rivalry going from just rivalry to maybe boiling over a little bit. There just had been, there's been a lot of different things happen over the time. I mean, you, you, we just race each other all the time, you know, and... 
we're we're both in Portland. Galen has been the best ten thousand meter runner. I mean, he won like nine of nine championships in a row. And you know, we've always thrown our best guy in there to to race him. It's just you know, when you're racing, you're you know, you're kind of throwing those like proverbial punches at yeah. each other, you know? And I think that me taking it out maybe felt to them like that I was trying to mess with them or something, but I was just running my, you know, I was running my race and I was trying to do what I thought was best for me and for, you know, and, and for our club. So. Did Jerry ask you to do that? No, it was just like, it was talked about with Jerry. Like I, t- we, we talked about it beforehand. So he knew it was what I thought I needed to do and what, you know, we as a club kind of decided that what we wanted to do. I guess other people didn't see it that way. <laughs> you were just running your race. I was running my race, man. And, you know, it's funny. I, I didn't think Ryan Hill and I looked that similar. No. I mean. <laughs> <laughs> so let me clarify. Yeah. Ryan, Bumby was leading. Ryan was in about third, second or third. Yeah. And he doesn't want to get boxed in with about, I don't know, a K to go. Sure. He moves to the outside the same time Galen decides to do it and they like clip heels. Yeah, it was an inadvertent contact. Uh, yeah, like, obviously. And so, well, Ryan no, was just, he was his robot. Sure. And yeah. no rational, like, you know, official is going to DQ anyone for that. Way worse happens in a European Diamond League 5K. If you want to look at, if you want to look at rough races, that's where you need to, to turn your attention. So technically, sure. you were DQ'd for yes. interfering with Galen Rupp's stride. <laughs> So <laughs> somehow, somehow yeah. in the very front. Yeah. For Ryan's the only one that ever touched him. Right. And he actually, I watched the race. Ryan clipped two people. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, and both of them, no one cared. Right. Cause it didn't affect the race. Right. At all. So there, there are a couple of theories out there as to why Alberto, cause Alberto made the claim. Right. To de- disqualify That's, Alberto Salazar. Right. The coach of NLP. Made the claim to disqualify you. The claim is maybe that you beat him in the pre- you beat Galen, the, his golden child, in the 2012 preliminary round. Right. Five thousand. Which, which I don't even think that really counts as like beating somebody because <laughs> it's, it's a it's a prelim. But in the prelim, Galen made a hard move, and I just covered it. And I was well, I was with him down the home stretch, so I. And I felt really good and it felt easy. So I just like kept running. And then and then he looked over to match it and it was already too late and I would cross the line first. Okay. So anyway. Do you think there's any credibility to that? <laughs> I'm sure he wasn't pleased by it. Sure. Uh, I, I doubt it made him really happy that I did, you know, that right. I... And it's funny, we were dipping each other. At the, I mean, we both were like trying to be... It's, it's again, it's, it's a, a rival. preliminary round. It's a preliminary round. And they're rivals. But it's a rivalry. Mm-hmm. It's... I would think that think of the best NFL like when the Bears and the Packers play the, in a preseason game. I bet there's still a little bit of. I think that I think the best rivalry would be Ravens Steelers Steelers. Okay, and I it, think they really hate each okay, other. Okay, Ravens Steelers preseason. There's probably still going to be some like actual hits. Yeah, and I think that's there's going to be a couple there's going to be a couple sound clips that they got to take out. And I. <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's not making it to like the you know, espn that's not making it to the nfl yeah, yeah it's uh gather around the fire right it's, yeah. 
it's not it's not what they they want the league Thanksgiving to look dinner. like. <laughs> it's going to be interrupted today. The the interesting about that race is uh, you didn't even know you were disqualified. No, I went back to the hotel and didn't know. Mm-hmm. I was told in the hotel lobby by someone I think that worked for Nike that I was disqualified. And then you guys go back. Uh, Jerry was still over there, and I guess he had already put in like a counter protest. I didn't go back. So this is where things got really messy. Is I wasn't actually there when it got messy. But yeah, I think that's when things got messy. I mean, that's it's well documented like I mean, people know. Oh yeah, this it's, a, ma- it's any- a matter of public record. Yeah, this isn't anything new. Maybe you can clarify what happened. Sure. You're disqualified for no apparent reason and there's video evidence to prove that you were should not be disqualified and it didn't matter if you were because you were eighth place right it was it was a non-event really right and jerry's still at the track you're home for some reason they didn't make an announcement they don't have to make an announcement you disqualified actually right which at this time they didn't i don't know if they do now yeah do i they don't know I, I don't know they don't, don't have know. to which is weird which kind of seems insane and alberto and jerry they start talking who who approached who from my understanding, Jerry tried to get tried to find out why I was disqualified, put in like a counter protest kind of thing because Alberto put in the Correct. the bid. Something I guess Lopez was also verbally like was I don't want to say assaulted. He was um, things were yelled at Lopez by our rivals <laughs> as well. So I think Lopez was pretty upset about it. And, you know, again, I don't know any of this is happening because I'm just back at the hotel thinking I got eighth place. Yeah. Like, <laughs> you know, like, like kind of like, oh, man, that sucks. <laughs> but like not knowing, like, like that was the worst last K of my life. Right. Oh, you fell off hard. Hard. Sure. Okay. Hard. So hard. Yes. Hard. That's our Lopez impersonation. OK, finish your thought. No, but uh, things were heated. Um they, you know, each each coach probably had their idea of what happened, and it did. They weren't linking up like with being the same. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I, I think from things things escalated. And if you're if you want to if you want to know more about that, I would go. I think Let's Run covered it. And there no, was, you have to talk about. There it. is some. There is more out there. For well, no, come on, man! Don't leave us hanging. <laughs> Just did someone? Did, were there punches thrown? Because there's so much out there. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think a, a, I don't think an actual punch was. Let's threatened. be let's be as as realistic as possible. Let's let's say yeah. Let's stick stick to the truth as we know it. So I don't think a punch was thrown. I think Alberto came over to Jerry. He w- he was moving and he was mad, you know. And some words were exchanged. I think they moved like eventually, like some other people kind of joined the 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 fray, so to speak, and it you know, cleared out pretty quickly after that. Cause I don't, I don't think anyone wanted to see like something actually happen because mm-hmm. this is like track and field and like, yeah, we're, we don't, we don't, we're civilized. We don't do that. God, I'd like to think that we're civilized. We're sensitive. We're sensitive, I guess. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I, and I think it basically ended from there, but I was disqualified for like three months. This is why it just divided everything. Because it yeah, stopped your career. It put your career in the track. It yeah. like stopped in the track yeah, for yeah. the whole year. Yeah. Yeah. For nothing. Yeah. Well, there was like a, there was like a, there was like an angry Twitter mob though that was like free Bumby. Like, <laughs> like we want, we want Bumby like not just DQ'd. Like give us a, you know, 
give us a reason. Yeah. Um, and I think USATF finally wisened up and realized that we made a mistake. It actually does matter. Like, I think probably USATF realized they made a mistake, but probably like didn't want to admit fault and probably thought, oh, it doesn't matter. He was eighth place. But it does kind of matter. Like, because you're still running. It just meant that like I wasn't in the result, but like I earned that result. I was eighth, you know, like I should like, even though it's not a great result, like I should still get that result, you know, and not be disqualified because, you know, one coach is upset about how the race was run. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, that's, that's just how you are, man. When we make a bet, even if it's a ridiculous bet, you'll still live by that bet. You'll let me make ridiculous bets. Do I bait you into the... You don't bait me. Okay. But if I put the bet out there and you know it's ridiculous, you're, you're just, you're like, all right, Woody. You want to make this bet? <laughs> I, I will think, accept. <laughs> I think it's a bad idea, but okay. <laughs> you will say you're like that's a bad bet, but I accept. Yeah. And then you will. Yeah. And now I probably owe you like ten burritos right now. No, I owe you like three, right? No, uh, maybe not even that many. I because think you've paid up a little bit. I ought to. Yeah. Um, the yeah. good news is, is you still plan on running for the next. We were talking about this today. Sure. Five years. Yeah, I want to. I mean, I think you know. Not going, like there was any bad news. Right. But the news is you're still yeah, running. Yeah. I'm, oh, yeah. And I'm training. I'm healthy. We didn't even talk about basically I missed a year and a half of training because of a couple injuries. But I feel like I'm finally like back on the right path in terms of what I need to be doing. And I really view where I am now as kind of like act two of my career focused completely on the marathon now. Um, and I just want to improve and get faster at that distance with the ultimate goal of making the Olympics. And I think, you know, if if I could make the Olympic team in 2020 and run in Tokyo in the marathon, it would feel kind of a redemption. It would feel like a redemption for like all the almost that I've had in my career, you know, all the close but not quites that would really, you know, cap off um, what what I would consider like a really successful career. Yeah. Look for me in Chicago. Yeah, no. That's, what, that's why we're in Mammoth. So, so yeah, Bumby is up here crushing. And, and you actually, it's gone without a hitch. Yeah, I mean. It really has. You're training, you look good. Good. Well, I don't want to, yeah. I don't want to hype you up too much. Sure. I have, well, I have high hopes. Yeah, I do too. I mean, it's, it's kind of, it's a different world running 120 miles a week and that sort of thing. But I, I'm really excited about like the next three years and, 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 and even more so excited for, you know, Chicago, which is less than two months from now, which is awesome. It should be, it'll be my second marathon and it'll hopefully be, uh, you know, a little bit faster than what I ran my first one. Mm-hmm. And you're, you're still kind of in a transition stage where you were one of the fastest guys in the country in the 5k and you're now building miles to, to be on the team in the Olympics yeah. in the marathon. Yeah. And I'm learning, you know, like every day is like, this is what this feels like. It feels bad, but like, yeah. you know, yeah. but, but it's, it's all good. It, it's a fun kind of way to kind of transition my career and just see what I can do for the next four or five years. Sure. Okay. That's pretty much it, man. Cool. Thanks Bobby for joining me here at the crib in Mammoth Lakes. Make sure you follow his Instagram at a bumble Uh He'll be posting more uh, as he gets ready for the marathon in Chicago, October 8th, 2017. All right, let's 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 bring back the Game of Thrones. Yeah. Do you know what character you are? We all feel that, you know, every person on the team has a character that they most resemble or, like, maybe it's a personality trait or whatever. Like, You don't get to pick your character, though. Like, no. someone had, like, it's a consistent consensus thing, right? Right, you know, it's... 
That's part of the deal. So I've been told that I'm Jamie Lannister. Right. Do you want me to explain why? Yeah, please. You're from the South. You... There's in, there's inbreeding in the south. There's incest oh, in the south. I don't think this is why. We need Chris, I need Chris Derrick to clear my clear my name here because he would give you the actual reason. No, no, he's like a good guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, maybe, maybe maybe sometimes I come off a bit harsh. Does maybe, but but Jamie, you know, he's definitely the most reasonable guy in his household, other than Tyrion. Sure. Yeah, that's that's actually the only three reasons. What would CD say? But I'm also the Kingslayer. You're also the Kingslayer. Yeah, yeah. And you know why? Yeah, yeah. So, who's Jerry? Oh, good question. Who is Jerry? Uh, he's Tyrion's dad. What's his name? <laughs> he is. He's Ty- Tywin Lannister. He's Tywin Lannister. <laughs> <laughs> so CD is gonna kill him. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, spoil, spoiler, spoiler alert. <laughs> yeah, um, we don't have to take that. Out. <laughs> no, I don't know. everyone's seen it by now. If you haven't, yeah, just stop listening. Yeah, to this that's podcast. so old. This is literally now. the third time yeah, I that, brought this up. That's also like three seasons ago. So, I mean, if you haven't figured it out by now and yeah. you're still listening, yeah, <laughs> yeah, for real. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Price of a Mile. That will be this month's episode. That was Andrew Bumbleo of Bowerman Track Club. You can follow him at a Bumbleo on Instagram or Twitter. And you can follow us at POAM Podcast on Twitter. One last thing, please check out the Mammoth Crib if you're a professional runner or an aspiring professional runner because I had a great time staying there. And uh, it's just a great place to train here in Mammoth. I'll leave the link for the Mammoth Crib in the description. As always, thanks for Sidious Mag for putting on the podcast, and we'll see you guys next month.